Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that thinks millennial pink is forever. Seriously, I don't care what you say. One of my top five colors. <laughs> but I think that girl boss is one trend that should disappear forever. Don't worry, we'll talk all about it in the episode. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 189. This is part two in a series about why new clothes are kind of garbage these days. I started this series back in December with the intention of finishing it at the end of 2023, but you know, COVID moving and so many other things stood in the way of that not particularly ambitious plan. It was totally achievable. Ah, Those last few weeks of last year are such a blur. Anyway, today we are going to pick up that conversation and you should definitely go back and listen to part one if you have not yet. It is episode 187. This series is actually turning into a three-parter because, of course, there is so much to discuss, which is basically, I think we can all agree, the most clothes horse thing I could ever say, right? (laughs) Classic clothes horse move right there. Before we continue our conversation about why clothes are kind of garbage these days, I want to talk a little bit more about, you knew it, you knew it was coming, the email. (laughs) Yes, I'm referring to the email that was the entire focus of last week's two plus hour episode. And honestly, like... I'm glad we started the year with that email because I think we're going to be talking about a lot of the themes from that and a lot of the themes from the conversation about it for the rest of the year. First off, I want to say thank you, so much thank you to all of you who have reached out to share your own thoughts on the email and to give a lot of, like, to be honest, really encouraging, positive feedback about last week's episode. You have no idea what kind of amazing impact that has on me and my mental health. So thank you. There's also been an incredible ongoing conversation on the Instagram post about that episode. So many of you have been sharing some really thoughtful responses. And honestly, it makes me feel like 1000% more invested in social media. Like, I feel like we can use it for the power of good and community building when people are having interesting conversations like this. So I'm definitely racking my brain with like, how can we make social media work for us? How can we make it more, I don't know, like enriching and engaging? Because I don't know about you, most of my feed these days has been really, we'll just say lackluster. (laughs) We'll just say that. Anyway, I'll link to that post in the show notes so you can go see for yourself, you know, read what everybody else is saying and maybe add your own thoughts. Let's keep it going. I'm hoping to share some of those comments in next week's episode, but I'm going to be honest. It takes some time to do that because first I have to read everything and then I have to reach out to everyone who commented that whose comments I want to share, ask them if it's okay. Can I use their name, their pronouns, et cetera. Then I have to take all that information and put it into another sheet and stay on top of it. And it's just, it's going to be a couple hours of work, but definitely worth it because wow, y'all really came to the table with some really really interesting stuff to say. I really, I really appreciate it. I know it's not fun to sit down and type on your phone. I try to avoid doing it as much as possible. So I see the work and thought 
that you have put into joining that conversation. One thing that did come up a few times in the conversation on that post over there on Instagram was the writer's use of the term girl boss. Now, in last week's episode, I kind of brushed that off, not because it didn't bother me, because yeah, it sure did bother me. (laughs) No, I was trying my hardest to keep my emotions out of the conversation, which is silly, of course, as I say it aloud, because yeah, I have feelings. I am a human. After all, I have insecurities, anxieties, and yeah, I'm super sensitive. I will argue that that sensitivity makes me a good friend, a good partner, a good boss. That sensitivity is why I care about this shit so much that I spend hours and hours working on it every week, right? So I am always trying to find that balance between my feelings and my sensitivity and what what I share with all of you, because I see and feel a lot of pressure to take my feelings out of the conversation. And I do think I try as hard as possible to remind everyone that I am also a human, a deeply flawed human, just like the rest of us. But it's like, there's something about our expectations around the content that we consume that I don't know. We don't always react well when people are in it with their emotions, right? I am acutely aware that there are many people who will disconnect with what I'm saying or disregard its factuality if I also throw some emotions in there, even though I'm feeling them constantly. Like I said, very sensitive person. (laughs) Also, I feel that pressure to be as perfect as possible because I receive so much feedback on a regular basis. And you know, like I said last week, I am a people pleaser. I don't want to cause any harm at all. And I want to ensure that people are as open and receptive to the information I'm sharing as possible. So there are definitely times when I feel like I'm walking the world's shakiest tightrope while I'm also still trying to speak authentically. It's a very interesting dichotomy. And yeah, I do wonder quite often if I would be held to these standards of emotionalist perfection if I were a cis male. I try not to get too caught up in that line of thinking because it will fill me with rage. But once I start thinking about it, which I have been for the last few days, It takes a few more days to dig myself out of it. As a reminder, I am a non-binary person and my pronouns are she, they, but I get that I am very feminine presenting. I would even say, yes, the content on the Clothes Horse Instagram account has a very like stereotypically feminine aesthetic to it, right? Like it's, there's a lot of pastel and cute animals and soft fonts, right? But on top of that, even as a person, I have very long hair. I love pastels. My wardrobe is a mashup of Laura Ashley and Grandma Core with with a little sprinkling of witchy vibes and pastel daydreams. It's not who all of us have been programmed to treat with respect. We have not been programmed to see content that is pink and full of cute kittens and take that seriously either. 
I like to think that I am challenging at least a little bit what we tend to think of as the proper format and presentation for information, for intellectual thought, for important things, for activism, right? Sometimes activism can be pink and cute. In fact, it, it can be anytime, right? That's, that's my belief. I do wonder though, like would people send me unsolicited DMs about the way I dress if I were a man? Would they be more willing to support my work financially if I were a guy? Would I be expected to respond to every bit of unsolicited feedback with niceness and gratitude if I weren't assigned female at birth? I got to wonder, right? I'm going to be blunt with all of you. I'm going to get the emotions into this. That email, that email hurt my feelings, especially at first. It was really hurtful to see all of my hard work and all of my support for our community be boiled down to greenwashing. That hurt. You all know how I feel about greenwashing. So it really, really hurt. And those hurt feelings shifted into self-doubt. Like, wow, maybe I really am fucking all of this up. I wondered. That led to the next phase. I think it's time to shut down Close Horse because I am an abject failure who thought they were encouraging people to buy less stuff, but I was really selling them stuff? Like, wow, what is wrong with me? I am so bad at things. That was where I was around the time Dustin said I needed to talk to my slow fashion friends about that email, which ended up being very sound advice and kind of got me back in a better headspace. I'll tell you, The use of girl boss in that email made me super angry on the first read. Even more angry, interestingly enough, on the 10th read. And by the 20th read of that email, I told myself that I had to get past that if I was going to be able to respond to it in a helpful, constructive way. One thing I have learned, you got to remember, as I told you in the last episode, my nickname was once Old Stewie. Because I like to stew about things, meaning think about them for a long time before I respond to them. And that's because I've learned, it's funny, like when I got that name, Old Stewie, I was probably like 19. As I've gotten older, I actually have become even older and even stewier because I've realized that the nuance in an issue it's often not found in the first moments, right? Like right after you read an email like that or someone presents an idea to you, it's not there right away. It might not even be there in hours. It might not even be there in days. The nuance and all the details, that all comes into focus with more time. Sometimes it means you're thinking about an email for six weeks and thinking about what you're gonna read and write about to get there, right? Sometimes that's just the time that it takes. And I realized pretty early on, if I was going to be able to get there to take that time and see the bigger picture and process it, think about it, write about it, I had to stop thinking about the girl boss of it all. It was basically like my brain said, okay, on any future readings of this email, I will skip the word girl boss. I will just skip right by it. Maybe it's two words. Anyway, I will skip that phrase. And Even when I presented that email on social media, I did not call it out because I felt, I felt like there was this lid on my feelings that was not, 
I'm always thinking about jars. You know, I got a lot of jars. I store everything in jars. Sometimes I put things in jars where I'm like, why did I do that? It's so hard to get it out, right? But I do. And, you know, I felt like my rage, my hurt feelings, all of that was in this jar that the lid wasn't really screwed very tightly on. In fact, not only was it not screwed on tightly, it was a little off the track. So actually it was kind of lopsided and could pop off at any moment. That's where I was. And I felt like if I even on Instagram said, by the way, the girl boss thing, blah, 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 I think the lid would have blown off. Right. And the thing is like my hurt feelings, my anger, my frustration with certain aspects of this email were to me not as important as the larger conversation and all of the other thought and research and reflection that had followed. Right. And I didn't want to overshadow that. So yeah, I did not say much about the girl boss stuff, but now I'm going to, so let's talk about it. Okay. (laughs) Because so many of you have asked about it and so many of you had a, had an immediate visceral response. And I think some of you were disappointed that I didn't I didn't speak to it more. And to be fair, the last week's episode, what was it like more than two hours of me talking? I don't think I could have taken 15 more minutes more to break down the girl boss of it all, but this is an ongoing conversation. So we're going to talk about it today. I'm going to start by saying the thing that really bothered me about the use of girl boss in that email is how it implicitly calls out a few members of this community and past guests of the pod who are good friends of mine that I care deeply about. For example, the reference to $400 sweaters, that was definitely Danny of Picnic Wear. If you recall, in our sweater episode a few months ago, we also talked about Danny's tiny collection of sweaters she made with the Endery. 100% cotton sweaters made with yarn that would have ended up in the landfill. It is so cool that she did that. And it was not easy and it was very financially risky for her, but that's how much it mattered to her to make a better sweater, right? I never got the vibe that Danny was trying to sell sweaters to any of us, but rather she was talking about how her love of knitwear, like she loves designing it, thinking about it, thinking about how it can be better. And in that episode, she talked about how her love of knitwear, this passion for it, conflicted with the demoralizing work of trying to create sweaters within the fast fashion model. And you know what? That exercise, thinking about that, moved her to try to make a sweater that would last the buyer a lifetime. The antithesis of the sweaters we were talking about in that episode. She wanted something that would break down in the landfill, a new sweater that would have the least amount of environmental impact possible while also being made ethically. And we discussed those sweaters after spending close to two hours explaining how and why new sweaters are so bad these days. And Danny shared so much of her expertise and experience with us for free. So of course, we want to hear about these sweaters. She's so knowledgeable, right? And we want to, we want to support her. It made me wonder if the writer of the email had listened to the same episode because the part where we talk about Danny's sweaters is so tiny and unsilly. Also, 
Beyond all that, Danny does an incredible amount of unpaid labor, like many small business owners within the slow fashion community, to educate others about the impact of fast fashion and overconsumption. Using her anywhere in the realm of the term girl boss, or just, I don't know, calling her out in that way, in that email, just minimizes what she does. And it's not okay with me. Next, people making yarn were called out. Well, I'm going to tell you, I've had one guest on Clothes Horse who makes yarn. That is Kathleen of Republica Unicornia. Her episode is actually one of my favorites because we talked about our own experiences of finding comfort from creating and crafting. Kathleen was incredibly brave to share her own story with all of you and me very vulnerable situation, right? I also, in that episode, explained how making things had helped me get through my own grief after my partner died. This was like an incredibly personal episode for both of us. But we also talked about the ways individuals could rein in their consumption of craft supplies and minimize their stash, all while finding that emotional comfort within making stuff. I, once again, really unthrilled, we'll just say, to have that be a part of that email. Stylists were called out in that email. Now, there have been a few stylists on the podcast over the past few years, and they're all like incredible people who also do a lot of unpaid labor within the slow fashion community, and that deserves to be recognized and never minimized. But I'm guessing that the stylist to call out was really uh, a reference to the one and only Maggie Green, the Halloween queen, who has been a frequent guest around here sharing so much information and expertise with all of us. Maggie legit works with people who are struggling to feel comfortable within their clothes. She is not like a, a stylist for influencers or celebrities. She is doing incredible work with people that is very personal and requires just uh, so much kindness and, and emotional labor from her. Furthermore, thrifting, reuse, and rewear are major parts of her approach to helping her clients. I'm also just going to say that Maggie is one of the most thoughtful people I have ever met, and no one gets to downplay her work as unimportant, okay? That really, it pissed me off, (laughs) okay? I'm not sure if I was to believe that the, quote, girl boss who's selling her goodwill finds on Instagram was Alex of St. Evans. I'm not even going to touch that one because Alex does so much incredible work within our community, sharing her knowledge around fashion history and even the history of clothing manufacturing. She brings so much research and thoughtfulness to everything she shares. Well, now you can see why that email made me angry and why I had to put that in the little jar and put the little cap on it that said girl boss and just like come back to it later. Yeah, it bothered me a lot that someone showed up to dismiss the hard work, talent, and experience of people who mean a lot to me. And I think mean a lot to many of you. These are people that I respect and admire myself who constantly inspire me and make me want to do better. What they do matters. And wow, they give 
so much of themselves back to this community. Everyone in their lives should be like, wow, I can't believe I get to know this person because that's how I feel. But as I said, I also recognize that the nuance, the need for additional information, the motivation to search for that information and then kind of synthesize it all together into your brain, that takes time. And to give myself that time, I had to ignore girl boss for a while. But like I said, we're going to discuss it now. So for those of you who are like, what? I thought girl boss was a compliment or I've never heard that before, that term before, or what? What are we talking about? <laughs> Let's walk through it, okay? So the term girl boss was first used by Nasty Gal founder Sophia Amoruso in her 2014 memoir of the same name. Yes, it was called Girl Boss. On my first day at Nasty Gal, Sophia's company, I was given a copy of Girl Boss to read. Of course, I had already read it because I felt like I had to for the interview, although no one asked me about it. But still, just in case it came up, you know how I am. I got to get all the information. Now, I have so many feelings about <laughs> Girl Boss. Um, I worked in it. Uh, it wasn't great working at Nasty Gal. It wasn't my worst job, but it was one of my worst jobs. And my most worst job was also of the same girl boss ilk. <laughs> so I have a lot of feelings about that term. It's really, it's really loaded emotionally for me. As I've talked about here on the podcast many, many times, what was girl boss, right? Like it was a book. It somehow related to clothing. What did it mean? Well, Amanda Mull explains the gist of Girl Boss best in her 2020 piece for The Atlantic called The Girl Boss Has Left the Building. I'm going to be sharing this in the show notes. Go give it a read. Even though it's like from almost four years ago, it's still strong. It still holds up. She writes, instead of dismantling the power men had long wielded in America, Career women could simply take it for themselves at the office. Hashtag girlboss argued that the professional success of ambitious young women was a two birds, one stone type of activism. Their pursuit of power could be rebranded as a righteous quest for equality and the success of female executives and entrepreneurs would lift up the women below them. Okay, I'll tell you. I read this out loud now and I'm like, hmm wow, it's some really ridiculous thinking. I can't believe people bought into this. But back then, we're talking a while ago. We're talking almost 10 years ago. I was all in. I was always really into feminism. Even as a kid, I did more than one report about Gloria Steinem. I was always writing reports about her. And I was always doing projects based on the fight for reproductive rights, which was pretty controversial subject matter for where I grew up. But I was like in it. I was thinking about it all the time. That said, two aspects of my adult life really brought the systemic discrimination that women faced on a daily basis into very sharp focus for me. One was becoming a parent and specifically a single parent. Let me tell you, being a single mom in the aughts was, well, let's just say everyone had a reason to be mean to you. Republicans have been raging against single mothers since the early 90s, blaming them for the decline of family values and 
allegedly milking the system. I will tell you, uh, spoiler here, there was no system to milk for all of us single parents in the aughts. I know I've told a story on the podcast before, but I specifically remember getting a $1 an hour raise at my job and all of my daycare assistance evaporated. The problem was that my daycare cost way more than $1 an hour and actually cost more than I was paid in an hour. And so it put me into a real bind of, okay, should I turn down the raise? Should I stop working? Should I look for a job that pays less? I don't know what to do. Um, and fortunately, uh, my daycare provider actually worked with me on the pricing and I was able to keep working. But, you know, this is the system that I had to live within, which was basically like, Mm, no one really wants to hire you because you have a kid. And if they do, they're going to be weird about it when any, ever, anytime anything comes up and, uh, you know, they're going to secretly judge you for having a kid in the first place. And the government itself, there's, there's no framework in place, right. To protect you at all. Um, no wonder people aren't having kids. Seriously. When I hear people ranting and raving about the lower birth rate, I'm like, well, of course, of course, people are having kids. You make it really hard to do that. Anyway, so that was one part of it. But then also, like, even the cool hipsters of Portland, Oregon, where I was living then, they kind of judged me for having a kid. Like, having a kid indicated a lack of intelligence or some backwards political beliefs. I was a pariah to everyone. And even getting and holding a job at that time was just so hard. The other thing that really really underscored the systemic discrimination based on gender in this world was working within the fashion industry. I learned pretty fast who had the power. Every job I have had in the industry involved an open floor office plan. You know, I bet you your job has the same one. Everybody just kind of sits at desks in a row. Maybe they have like little five foot walls that divide them, but it's like you're all sitting in one big room and Everyone knows everyone's business, that's for sure. There's no privacy. There's not a lot of space. And at the same time, the executives, they always have offices, right? They get privacy and space. Well, I will tell you, at every fashion job I had, the open floor plan seats were filled with women. The offices, they held only men. The executives always called us girls and sweetheart. We had to engage in light flirting if we wanted a promotion. But no matter how many promotions you might earn, it was pretty apparent that the ceiling on your career was pretty low if you weren't born with XY chromosomes. Like there was an expectation that eventually you would leave and get married or something. Seriously, it was felt so old timey. And yet here it was, it was in this century, right? So I personally was pretty excited about the notion of girl boss. Could women lift one another up with their success? It, it seemed dreamy, like, wow, let's do it. Sign me up. Of course, Nasty Gal did not deliver on the promise of all of this girl bossing, right? It was a notoriously toxic place to work, as I've talked about in the past. And there were male executives there, too, who got the offices right while the rest of us sat in the open seating. Male executives who called you sweetheart and sunshine and bullied you and disparaged your intelligence and talked over you in meetings and all of the things. It was the same, but somehow worse because everybody thought we were doing something special there, but we were all just like, not nah, the same, it's the same shit, right? 
What Girlboss as an idea did do was sell lots of t-shirts and tchotchkes. Every retailer jumped on the feminist merch bandwagon, all, of course, while underpaying and overworking their female employees and never, ever mentioning the conditions that their predominantly female garment workers faced every single day while they were making those feminist tees. And really, the heart of Girl Boss was, you guessed it, capitalism. Dun, 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 dun. In Girl Boss, Sophia Amoruso wrote, I entered adulthood believing that capitalism was a scam, but I found instead that it's a kind of alchemy. So I'll tell you this. The first time I read that statement, I was like, uh, what kind of word salad nonsense is this? <laughs> this doesn't mean anything to me. You know, as I was reading it for the job interview, because I'm prepared like that. Here's the thing. If you go check out the definition of alchemy, you start to see what Sophia is getting at here. The Oxford Dictionary defines alchemy as a seemingly magical process of transformation, creation, or combination. Does that mean that capitalism is magical? Uh, no. But... I think we can do some really creative, magical thinking to feel okay about capitalism and even double down on it when it's working out in our favor. That, my friends, is the alchemy right there. Sophia admitted that she once saw capitalism as, quote, materialistic pursuit for materialistic people. But as money started to go her way, as capitalism began to work in her favor, her thought on it transformed, right? She realized, quote, in many ways, money spells freedom. And to be honest, I don't disagree with her. Only because those of us without money often feel very unfree to chase our dreams. As I discussed in last week's episode, we have a lot less options. We're, we're trapped, Girl Boss was a sort of feminism that really had nothing to do with social progress. It was completely uninterested in addressing larger systemic issues of oppression. Once again, let's talk about the garment workers making all of those feminist teas or the impact of making and disposing of all of those feminist teas. Where's, where's the intersectionality there, right? It was really, Girl Boss, really at its core, was the least intersectional feminism that could exist, aka white feminism. So I'm a big fan of the Gia Tolentino book, Trick Mirror, which captures a lot of the nonsense of the millennial experience. And I can say that because I lived through all these things and they seemed so exciting at the time and soon turned sour, right? Highly recommend reading this book. It's, it's great. I'll link to it in the show notes. One of the chapters of Trick Mirror is called The Story of a Generation in Seven Scams. I mean, right there, you're like, this defines this book. <laughs> I get it now. Of course, Girl Boss is one of those scams. Tolentino says, 
politics built around getting and spending money is sexier than a politics built around politics. She goes on to call out that rather than getting expanded reproductive freedom, equal pay, subsidized childcare, a higher minimum wage, and so many other things that we truly need to make life more equitable and to, you know, give us true freedom. Instead, Girlboss gave us feminist teased. Feminist conferences of the Girlboss ilk that were wildly expensive and I still don't understand, but did have a lot of Instagram content attached to them. We got moon juice. We got period panties that contained PFAS. That's what we got from Girlboss. <sighs> yeah. Lee Stein is another writer that I just adore. You should check out her book, Self-Care, which is one of my favorite books I have read in recent years because it really captured what it is to exist within the girl boss self-care retail therapy realm. It really, it really resonated with me. And it's also a pretty fun read once you get past your rage. It's a fiction book, by the way, in case you're wondering. (laughs) Anyway, she wrote a great medium essay, not medium sized, but like, you know, the platform medium. She wrote a great media medium essay in 2020 called The End of the Girl Boss is Here. And in that essay, she says, the rise and fall of the girl boss is about how comfortable we've become mixing capitalism with social justice. We looked to corporations to implement social changes because we lost faith in our public institutions to do so. And I want you to put a pin in that link between capitalism and girl boss, because I think right there, if we were mapping this out on a bulletin board with the yarn and the photos and the push pins in, in an attempt to track down why not a serial killer, but why, <laughs> why girl boss is a problematic term, a hurtful term in 2024. Uh, there's definitely a big pin on a card on this board that says girl boss doesn't exist without capitalism, right? So that's, that's one point here. This is one reason why girl boss, not a nice thing to say. Okay. So the other thing that came with Girl Boss was that we also got a lot of really bad female bosses, which I have experienced time and time again. I already told you, I worked at Nasty Gal. It was not great. It was in no way Girl Bossin, or at least what we thought Girl Bosses. Now that we know what it is, oh, perfect. Great example. Awesome. Good job. Right after that, I worked for another company that ironically also did most of its sales in feminist tees. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I always say it was my worst job ever. It was called Wild Fang. Most of you have probably never heard of it. That job was also terrible. And my boss was not great, I'll just say. And I got very sick mentally and physically from working there. And so that was still, even though by then Nasty Gal had gone away, there was still, girl boss was still in the air. We might not say girl boss. We might say boss babes. That was like the term we were using a lot at that job. It meant the same thing. It meant women are now in charge and making money and everything, the world's problems are solved. The problem is that these leaders 
these girl bosses, these boss babes, if you will, they didn't come at the idea of management and business with a particularly high level of empathy or emotional intelligence. They simply stepped into the mold of men in leadership, all while rebranding themselves as boss babes. Amanda Mole eloquently explains it. She says, America's workplace problems don't begin and end with the identities of those atop corporate hierarchies. They're embedded in the hierarchies themselves. Making women the new men within corporations was never going to be enough to address systemic racism and sexism and the erosion of labor rights or the accumulation of wealth in just a few of our country's millions of hands. The broad abuses of power that afflict the daily lives of most people. Yeah, just having a f- a female CEO, it's 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 not the big social justice win that you think it is. If there's not all this other stuff going along with it, right? And Girl Boss didn't do that. Girl Boss wasn't about diversity and inclusion, right? It wasn't about trying to find equity for all stakeholders within a business including workers overseas and even the customers. It wasn't it wasn't about any of that. It was just like, oh, we swapped out your CEO essentially, right? And there's different branding. And now we get to talk about it on Instagram. Well, as the girl boss era wound down around 2020, that seemed to be the year it officially went away. We had a long list of horrible bosses and toxic work environments that was the subject of so many articles and social media posts. We had Ty Haney of Outdoor Voices, interestingly enough, ousted for being a toxic leader. They then brought in a new CEO who I actually have worked with at one of my past jobs, who was literally the most toxic person I've ever worked with. I heard she has since been pushed out in the past few months, but not not a great choice there. I did wonder if they were just like, oh, we need to have another woman in this role. I have no idea. Anyway, then there was Steph Corey of that oh-so-Instagrammable luggage brand Away. Oh my God. The stuff going on at Away, it still haunts me. Like you, you give it a Google. I couldn't believe what a nightmare place that sounded like it was to work. Um, Audrey Gelman of The Wing, you know, The Wing just went RIP after all of that. There was Mickey Agrawal of Thinks, who I think was maybe the first so-called girl boss to get her comeuppance. And also what was happening in her company was scandalous and abusive. Um, she literally called herself a CEO, which I don't like. <laughs> Because that's all, those are my thoughts there. Um, I remember the first time reading that and being like, wait, what? This is a red flag. Anyway, then there was Leandra Medine of The Man Repeller. And of course, there was Sophia Amoruso of Nasty Gal. The other thing about all of these CEOs, if you will, is that they would be, I'm like embarrassed for them now, honestly. They would be preaching this message of empowerment and girl bossinality. Is that a word? I'm not really sure. They would be preaching that so hard on social media and giving TED talks and, you know, just doing podcast episodes and like writing books and all of this stuff about that. But then behind the scenes, they weren't doing any of that. You know, one of the first pieces of investigative journalism that came out about the behind the scenes at Nasty Gal, written by uh, Anna Merlin, talked about how pregnant women had been fired 
just because they were pregnant. People's benefits cut off just really bad treatment of the team as a whole. When I was there, Sophia would send out company-wide emails about bikini diets we should try out. I mean, it was not... It was not girl bossing if in terms of like what it was supposed to be for the world. And it was really shallow. You know, it was all about appearance and dressing for the male gaze and, you know, spending so much money on like grooming and self-care to make yourself aesthetically pleasing enough to get ahead. And these are all the things that f- feminism shouldn't be, right? When I was working for that second less girl boss, more boss babe company, my worst job ever. Uh, I was working there when the Women's March happened, the first one. And I'm going to tell you, this company was selling thousands and thousands of feminist tees and hats and pins and you name it to people who were going to be attending the march. And in fact, was promoting heavily this product that would be great to wear to the Women's March. So the company itself made a lot of money off of the Women's March. And yet we didn't volunteer at the Women's March. We didn't donate any money or support anybody who was running it. We didn't even go as a group. Um, it felt it felt like we were only involved in feminism when it could make money for us. And otherwise it, was very inconvenient. And I still, to this day, I feel haunted might be melodramatic, but I feel, I feel really unhappy that we didn't in any way engage in a support way with, with the Women's March. It just felt so egregiously consumerist. Consumerism was at the core of Girl boss. And that's another, some other card with a pin on our bulletin board where we are tracking down why girl boss is an insult, right? Capitalism and consumerism, that's where we are right now. And these are both things that are not a good look, right? In her 2023 piece for Early, Isabel Sloan writes, Over time, the girl boss revealed herself to be a Wizard of Oz-like figure who operates contradictorily behind a curtain, using smoke and mirrors to sell women's empowerment while doing nothing materially to support this facade. For the girl boss, feminism was a brand-building exercise rather than a show of solidarity. Oh, by the way, the name of the essay I just quoted how girl boss became a slur. So how did girl boss become a slur? Because it is, it's an insult. And to be fair, I cringe when I see someone using it as a compliment or a hashtag. I used to be super wary. Okay. I maybe still am of Poshmark marketing because it always felt very girl boss, girl power to me. And I would see people using the hashtag girl boss and I would just die a little bit inside Let's think about the term girl boss. Here's another thing, okay, for our bulletin board. There's another index card on there, pin. The yarn's connecting it all, right? It's already, it's going to connect to capitalism and consumerism. It is that the term girl boss in itself, even when girl boss was peaking, is gross 
and insulting, right? It's like, ha ha ha, look at that girl over there doing business. It's treated as a novelty, like a dog driving a car or a horse that can do math. And to be fair, I don't know if a dog can drive a car. I'd be willing to let them try in a parking lot maybe, but I have seen a horse that can do math. I swear it's not a dream I had. I saw it on YouTube. Why are we making a novelty out of women in leadership roles? Why does it need a cute name that also, I mean, girl is a female child, right? We don't ever use the term boy boss, do we, right? So here we are. We've got our bulletin board right here. We've got our index cards that are helping us solve the case of why the use of girl boss is insulting. Okay, so we've got capitalism. We've got consumerism. We've got, ew, it's gross. It's a gross word, okay? We can't forget the proliferation of gaslight, gatekeep, and girl boss memes, which would be another card on our bulletin board because girl boss is not a compliment right now, okay? As Sloan writes in her essay, seriously, go read it. It's not a long read and it will get you as fired up as I am. She says, the popularity of gaslight gatekeep girl boss is rooted in its ability to actively demonstrate the toxicity of girl boss culture to begin with. Ding, ding, ding. Here's another card for our bulletin board. Toxic culture, toxic idea. Okay. A girl boss, this is Stone continuing to write, a girl boss is unconcerned with the dismantling of oppressive social structures like patriarchy and capitalism, and instead focuses on manipulating these systems for personal gain. For the girl boss, the personal is indeed political, but to the detriment of everyone around them. For the girl boss, feminism was a brand building exercise rather than a show of solidarity. Wow. Okay, that's going in the center of our bulletin board. Who? What color yarn are we using for this? I'm, I'm voting for like neon pink, you know, just keep that girl boss vibe. You can see all this stuff connecting and you're like, yeah, girl boss, not a good term to use at this point, right? It would be very obvious why someone would feel hurt if they were called a girl boss, right? Especially in an email sort of criticizing women selling stuff in the first place, right? Furthermore, you cannot ignore the link between, here's another thing I hate, hustle culture. It is so intrinsically linked to girl boss. This whole idea that if you just work all the time, you'll eventually be successful. Whatever that success is supposed to be, because I've only been successful in giving myself a three-month sinus infection from working out without rest with a girl boss as my boss, okay? <laughs> Girl boss is really just a rebranding, maybe in a soft millennial pink, which by the way, still love that color. I don't care what you say. Perhaps it is just a rebranding of the bootstraps myth of capitalism, which put that on the bulletin board because we don't like the bootstraps myth, right? As Amanda Mole writes, the push to move beyond the girl boss is an acknowledgement that a slight expansion of college edu educated women's access to venture capital or mentoring opportunities was never a meaningful change to begin with or an avenue via which meaningful change might be achieved. Being belittled, harassed, or denied fair pay by a woman doesn't make the experience instructive instead of traumatic. 
Yes. Go off, Amanda Mull. You are right. Okay? Having been there. Girl boss is a problematic term. Girl boss was not great from moment one. It took us a long time to see it, right? I mean, maybe at least a couple of years. It's funny that girl boss hung on until 2020 for about six years there. But really, I would say three years into it, many of us who worked within it saw how problematic it was. And I think after 2020, we began to see it even in even sharper focus because we could see how much girl boss and consumption of girl boss related products, how connected those were and how it made it even more problematic. How girl boss was ultimately a product story, a means of selling stuff more than any social justice movement. I mean, well, it wasn't, it wasn't even like a tiny bit of social justice movement. It was not feminism. It was stuff, you know, it was a marketing story. So listen, I could talk about this for like six more hours because I am very passionately anti-girl boss, not just because I lived it, but because I think it is really harmful. Kim and I recorded a few episodes about girl boss for the department a couple years ago. You should go listen to those for more detail and our feelings and experiences about it. I'll link to those in the show notes. But at the end of the day, right now it's 2024. The use of girl boss is meant to be snarky. It is meant to be pejorative. It is meant to be hurtful. It is definitely intended to be belittling. It is reductive of people's value of the quality of their work, of the meaning of what they do. One thing is for certain, it definitely adds a note of misogyny to just about any email that includes it. So yeah, I was really not pleased with the use of girl boss in that particular email. And I do think it created an entire tone about it that I, like I said, I had to really work to move past in order to have constructive conversation about the other ideas in the email. If the listener had been following the podcast for so long, they, they knew how I felt about that term. And I have to just pretend that they didn't. Um, but also even if they hadn't, listen to the podcast for that long. By now they know, like all of us do, that girl boss is an insult, a way of downplaying the work of anyone who isn't a cis male. And I see it especially used in spaces around small business owners, um, particularly resellers, but also makers. And I am not okay with it. Furthermore, if you are existing within a space of activists, of people who are thinking an awful lot about the best right thing to do, which I would say is exactly what the slow fashion community is, we are over here unpacking capitalism. We are unpacking consumerism, right? We are unpacking these ideas that were really products being sold to us. And we are thinking a lot about the intersectionality of all the things that matter to us. If you barge in like the Kool-Aid man and throw out the term girl boss, you know that that will be hurtful in that situation. Because this is a group of people that knows how problematic that term is. That is very, we are very aware of it. If you start calling small business owners within the slow fashion community girl bosses when they are trying every day to survive within late stage capitalism while also fighting for change within it, well, you know you're being a jerk and you're definitely devaluing everyone's work. 
A friend who shall remain nameless said to me, it really does feel that there are a lot of loud humans who think that the only way to be good is to not exist since existing takes up resources. It's diet culture repackaged for the sustainability set. The best way to be a femme lady type person in the world is to be as small as possible through self-denial. In some ways, I'd say it's even more insidious than diet culture because to consume or make anything or the wrong thing is to be personally responsible for the death of the planet. There's no joy in it, just guilt and shame. And my friend is not wrong here. I will also say that when it comes to all of the work that so many people are doing to dismantle fast fashion, to educate others about slow fashion and consumerism and all of the things that we talk about here on Close Horse, the vast majority of the people doing this work, I'm going to tell you right now, are not cis men. This is a community that is driven by women non-binary people, trans people. We are the people out here doing this work. Last year, Alex of St. Evans and I did an exhaustive exploration of the ethics of secondhand reselling. It actually was one of my favorite projects I've ever worked on because it took me in a lot of different directions. I started that project knowing that I wanted people to shop secondhand and I knew that resellers enabled it, but I did worry about the ethics of it. And so for me, it was a really exciting journey to learn all about it, you know, and to dismantle those myths, which I wasn't, I wasn't sure there were myths when I began. I didn't know what I was going to find. And just changing my perspective, learning more about it and solidifying things I already thought at the same time, it was a really incredible project to work on. Anyway, one thing that came up time and time again in our research and reading was that there was a major divide in how cis male resellers were treated online versus, well, anyone else. Namely, the cis males, especially the white dudes, were treated with a level of reverence as experts, as brilliant business masterminds and arbiters of style. Everyone in the comment sections of their posts was so encouraging, like you're the goat or you're the genius, you know, things like that, really propping up these resellers and, and being grateful for their work. Right. Then you go into the comment sections of some non-dude resellers, especially young women. And guess what? It's a whole bunch of you're stealing clothes from poor people. Bullshit. You should die. You are terrible. All just so horrible, discounting the hard work involved in resale, the importance of it. I mean, I could go on and on. It was a completely different environment. Even the use of the term Depop girlies has the same flavor as girl boss in 2024, as in what you do, it doesn't matter. What you do is stupid. You don't even work hard. Your job doesn't take any skill. All you do is sell stuff, blah, 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 right? Ultimately, the thinking seems to be if you're anything but a cis male and you're trying to make a living, your work should not be respected. And not a fan of that, right? I'm obviously not a reseller. But when I first started posting about fast fashion on TikTok earlier last year, I had dudes showing up to tell me that I was a loser and that my memes were shitty and I was a waste of time. (laughs) Like my life was a waste of time or that I didn't understand how business works and I was really stupid. Uh, 
some of them thought I was like a teenage girls and would cite that in their converse, in their comments. And just, they were like, when you grow up, you'll understand. And I just, <laughs> it wasn't the first time that I had to deal with that kind of stuff. Right. But it was the first time I had to deal with that kind of stuff in a while, because a couple of years ago, I set the controls on my Instagram account to only allow followers to comment on posts. You can't do that on TikTok. Back then I had a bunch of, you know, boy bosses just showing up in my Instagram comments to like explain chemistry to me or how clothing works or all kinds of other weird stuff. They would just be trolling around looking for something to comment on, I guess. I don't know. Some of them would even just show up to tell me that I was ugly. (laughs) One person said to me that I was so ugly. There was no way I actually worked in fashion and I was a liar. Yeah. Like, That's the kind of stuff I have to deal with too, because people look at me and they think, what kind of actual knowledge could this person bring to the table? They're wearing a puff sleeve dress, you know? Like I said, the slow fashion community is primarily women, trans men, and non-binary people. We are leading this movement. We do all of this work. And you know what? We have a big hill to climb. Like not only are we fighting against this big machine that is fast fashion and overconsumption, we're also fundamentally disrespected by so many people out there just because of our gender. Lots of people don't think we have anything of value to say. In fact, Many of us, even uh, within ourselves, we're unpacking our own implicit bias, whether that is racism, fat phobia, or even internalized misogyny while we do this work, right? And it's interesting to me. So like going back to our bulletin board of why girl boss is an insult in 2024, here's another index card for that. And that is that girl boss in itself didn't, it didn't care about fighting racism, right? It didn't care that the gender wage gap is even, is far wider with women of color, right? It didn't, it didn't think about that. It wasn't like, oh, we're addressing these systemic issues. It didn't think about how climate change, well, didn't talk about climate change at all, but it certainly didn't say, you know, climate change is going to disproportionately affect the poorest people on our planet, right? In fact, they didn't even think like, What can we do to fight poverty? What opportunities can we create to level the playing field? No, none of that happened, right? Here's the thing. Slow fashion thinks about all of that all the time. You have no idea until you are working in this space, how complex all of these issues are and how much we are all educating ourselves in able to not have this weird one-dimensional girl boss, white feminist take on the impact of fast fashion and fast everything, right? We're all smart people who are working really hard to be the best people that we can be. And that is the opposite of girl boss. But like I said, the internalized misogyny, it is everywhere. And I encountered it on a regular basis too. If you've heard your whole life that vocal fry means someone is stupid or that clothes are silly and unimportant, of course, it's going to take some work to get used to listening to people with cute voices talking about clothing, right? It's going to take a while for you to realize that clothing is a big deal, right? That it's more than just clothes. And I'll tell you, 
frequently when I have a new guest on the podcast, I'm like, Hey, like I give them a little pep talk before we get going. Like, Hey, I'm going to edit this. So don't worry if you sneeze, the doorbell rings, the dog barks, or you need to use the bathroom. It's all going to be fine. If you forget what you're saying halfway through, just start that section over. If you want to record your answer to that question again, we can. And the other thing I say is like, do not worry about saying like, or, um, or anything like that, because you know what? That's the way that intelligent people talk in 2024. And I intentionally do not edit that stuff out, even with myself, because I want to show the world that there are all these smart people out there who don't sound like Tom Brokaw or some other white guy on NPR. God, the stuff in the NPR subreddit when people show up to talk about how Aisha Roscoe, who is the host of um, Sun Weekend Edition, Um, you know, I listen to NPR every day. Anyway, she is a black woman and people show up to just, oh, I can't even just to talk about the way she speaks and how it bothers them and feels unprofessional. I'm like, wow, way to show what a racist you are and a sexist too. Good job, guys. We're fighting all this together, right? And we have a hard enough time out there getting people on the outside to take us seriously. We got to take one another seriously, right? Before they're going to take us seriously. We can't can't call each other girl bosses. Last week, I was in Albany, New York, lobbying on behalf of the Fashion Act, and it was incredible, an amazing experience. And it felt like, wow, I'm really out here like fighting for systemic change in a way that could like really happen. It just felt, wow, I don't get a lot of feelings like that in my life, you know? And it struck me actually that for most of my life, I've been talked over, cut off, or just plain ignored in just about every meeting I've ever attended, and in some of my relationships too, no one wanted to hear what I had to say, even though I am an expert in my field, and I'm pretty smart, as you know, read a lot of books, memorized them, even the girl boss one. (laughs) In Albany, it felt so exciting to be working with this group of activists who were primarily women and non-binary people. No one talked over me. People listened. And that's what I love about the slow fashion community in general. We listen to one another. We are thoughtful. We are supportive. And we never call one another girl boss. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room, all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. 
Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriela Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriela Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown NOLA only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagavan Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. 
Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. So it kind of feels like it was about 1,000 years ago since I recorded part one of this series about why new clothes are kind of garbage now. I really had to go back and read the entire transcript to refresh my memory. And, you know, it makes sense. I mean, I've loaded, unloaded, and unpacked about 1,000 boxes since then, and I drove 1,600 miles. Also, it was like six weeks ago or so, and it feels like 1,000 things happened in that time period. Why? Why is life so much full of things that happen? (laughs) I don't know. So you're probably feeling the same way. Let's remind ourselves of what we have discussed already. This is not a substitute for never listening to part one, but if you already did, this is just a little refresher. So first, we talked about planned obsolescence, aka a strategy of producing consumer goods that rapidly become obsolete or broken and then require replacing, resulting in increased sales, which basically summarizes fast fashion, right? A model that relies on our overconsumption to stay afloat, right? We have to buy as much stuff as possible as often as possible. Planned obsolescence, great for that. We also talked about the ways planned obsolescence plays out in fashion via both low quality and rapid turnover of trends and also making it really hard to fix these things, right? Next, we talked about the design and production process that takes place in most fast fashion retailers where cutting costs is the primary focus. That's going to come up time and time again in this episode. Fabrics, trims, and details are revised until the cost meets the target set by upper management, often resulting in a garment that is, to be honest, completely different from the original design. It is so it is so depressing to work on these these clothes. <laughs> and I know all of my friends who work in design and production feel the same way. It's really disheartening, especially when you are a creative person and you love taking pride in your work. It's very, very hard. Lastly, we unpacked one of the several reasons why clothing is kind of garbage these days, and that is overproduction. Every time we buy a brand new garment from a big retailer, we are also paying for the 150 billion garments that the industry produces every year that are never sold or worn. Not only are we paying for the manufacturing and materials involved in creating those garments, in most cases, we are also paying for the disposal. Last week in one of the meetings in Albany, where we were meeting with legislators, a legislative liaison asked 
how more regulation of the fashion industry would impact consumer prices. Like, would we, the customers, have to pay more to get retailers to pay living wages and not be so wasteful and gross? The answer is, it's no. Because right now, brands are wasting so much money in this rapid clip race to produce and sell as much clothing as possible, as cheaply as possible. Overproduction is one of those things that is costing these brands a lot of money. But ultimately, all of the reasons that clothing is kind of garbage these days, they are all the direct result of this speed and quest for lower and lower costing. And that quest for lower and lower costing is emerging because of all of these repercussions that the industry is facing as part of their race to the bottom and their race to be the fastest, right? So they're creating bad stuff and dealing with it is costing them more money. So then they're creating even worse stuff, which costs them even more money. So it's just this vicious cycle. Here's another reason new clothing is so abysmal these days, and that is air freight, meaning your clothes literally traveling around the world on an airplane. You're not with them. You're not wearing the clothes. They're not in your suitcase. We're talking about before you've even bought them. In the early days of my career, almost everything we bought shipped from Asia. And that's pretty much the same right now. Everything we bought for the most part was transported via boat in cargo containers full of other orders for my employer, all on ships. When the ship would arrive in the port in Long Beach or New York or even Philadelphia, the containers were unloaded. Then they went through customs and then they were trucked off to our warehouse. And this process took a while. Usually shipping via boat, also called shipping via ocean, takes about six weeks. Longer if there is a backup at the port or in customs. And that happens more often than you would think, especially at high volume times of year, like July and August, when large orders intended for holiday shopping arrive at the port. So that six-week shipping meant that at best, you could expect to receive an order about three weeks after you issued the official PO, which is an abbreviation of purchase order, which is the document that buyers use to place orders with factories and vendors. So yeah, you would place the the PO with the vendor and you might get it in three weeks. That would be like best case scenario. Like everything is lining up and the sample is already approved and all of that. And so that's not how it works most of the time. But In general, like, okay, let's say with that three weeks window, you would get about five weeks for production, inspection, and packing, another week to get to the port and be loaded on the ship, and then six weeks to travel across the ocean, go through customs, and arrive in the warehouse. But like I said, that's the best case scenario. Let's say the fabric mill was running behind, or the label factory was waiting on raw materials, or there was a weather issue that closed the factory for a week or two. Maybe there was bad weather at the port, so they couldn't even load up the ship. Suddenly, we're looking at four to five months, maybe even longer, if there were other issues with the production or fit, which often there were. I mean, I have had orders push out a few weeks because the shipment of price tickets, like the price tags, was lost 
on the way to the factory where the clothing was being sewn. So the factory was sort of sitting on all this produced clothing, waiting to put the price tags on so they could ship it to us because we expected that all products were pre-ticketed, meaning had the price tags on when we received it. So all these little things can slow it down. There's a backup at the polybag factory, so nothing can be bagged. There's a cardboard box shortage because of a monsoon. I mean, it's so many things happen, but in most cases, it wasn't the end of the world if an order took more than three months to, to be produced and shipped because we worked so far in advance, usually about six months in advance. So in February, we were working on August and September, maybe even November, December, if we're talking about sweaters, hats, and gloves, because yarn always takes longer. We planned it into our calendar. It was part of how we worked. And yeah, sometimes there'd be orders that were catastrophically late. I mean, like by a week or two, but in general, it worked. Every once in a while, an order would be running late and that was a problem. Maybe we needed it for a merchandising story or a marketing event or back in the day, early in my career, for a catalog launch. Imagine, imagine making a catalog. (laughs) In 2024, that seems wild. Imagine a Shein catalog. It would be, it would be like those old Sears catalogs that had like a thousand pages. Anyway, so suddenly we are in a mini crisis here where the we need the order for this very specific deadline, and it's not going to be here on time. So at that point, after we stopped panicking, we would talk about shipping it via air literally on an airplane. Now, shipping via plane saves so much time. And you, I mean, seriously, in this scenario where you are trying to get this product in on time and you're just, things are stacked up against you, being allowed to ship it via air is like, oh, now I can sleep tonight, right? Instead of six weeks for transport, you're looking at a week tops, often like five days. And that includes trucking to and from the airports and customs. I mean, everything we buy goes through such an epic journey. We're going to talk about that more in more detail in a few minutes. But this stuff is like on planes, trains, and automobiles, seriously. So here's the thing about shipping via air. On one hand, you're like, oh, okay, it's guaranteed to arrive on time. Whew. What a relief. On the other hand, it's so expensive, like so much more than shipping via boat. And that makes sense, right? Because the fuel is more expensive and there's less space. And rather than being shipped shipped with many, many other orders for the same company in a container, the order is kind of shipped on its own. So you don't get that like bulk discount. Even the truck to pick it up at the airport is going to be more expensive because it might not be a whole load, right? So it adds up. Now you're wondering, because maybe you don't think about logistics as much as I strangely do, how much more expensive is it to ship something on a plane versus on a boat? Well, generally, this can change at a moment's notice. You can expect to pay 25 cents or less to ship a garment via boat, maybe 50 cents in the worst case scenario. Now, like I said, that can change depending on other circumstances. Ocean freight increased wildly in cost in the first few years of the pandemic. Then there were fuel costs that were pushing it up as well. Um, I have heard that those costs have come down pretty substantially, but even as of like 2022, we are still looking at like double the cost that it was in 2019, right? So those, much like everything else in our life that involves transportation, prices change based on a lot of factors and they change often. 
But still, shipping via air is probably going to cost a couple of dollars, like $2 a unit. Once again, that could go up, that could go down. If it's a pair of shoes, um, well, if they are in a box, it would be somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 per pair of shoes, $5 if they are unboxed. Yeah, shipping shoes via air, big deal, (laughs) very expensive. Um, When you ship via air, you're kind of paying for both weight and space, while on the boat, you're just kind of paying for the space in the container. So it's it's really expensive, right? So $2 for air versus 25 cents per ocean might not sound like that much of a difference, but if the order is for 10,000 units, which is a pretty standard retailer size order, although if we were talking about Zara here, we'd probably be talking about like 50,000 units, so just something to keep in mind. With that 10,000 unit order, we're looking at $20,000 to ship that order instead of 2,500. Do that often and the freight costs get out of control really, really fast. In the early days of my career, we rarely shipped via air unless it was super urgent. And even then you would have to get special permission from upper management. Like the president of the company would literally with a pen have to sign off on an air freight request. And then your assistant would have to take it over to the freight department and give it to them before they would book the air freight. And often the decision would be made to just ship part of the order via air and the rest would go via boat just to save money. So just the bare minimum that we would need for this marketing story or catalog or what have you, that's all we would get. And the rest would still come a few weeks later. My, how that has changed over time. More and more, we began to ship orders via air because we couldn't wait three months for a product, much less six months. Rather than working six months in advance, we were writing orders, issuing those POs four to eight weeks in advance, rushing the entire process and and ensuring that we always had to ship everything via airplane. We worked so fast for a few reasons. You know, one, there was a lot of fear from executives that we might either miss a trend or buy the wrong product. And their thinking was, too, by working so close to the delivery date, we would be sure to deliver the hottest, most current trends. Because three, there was a major race to be the first brand to have that trend. And four, retailers like Zara were delivering stuff in four weeks. In the Shein, Boohoo, Fashion Nova era, new product was moving from design to finished product on the site for sale in less than two weeks. How do you keep up, right? So brands were trying to narrow that gap as much as possible, sometimes even drop shipping directly from the factory in China to the customers. Obviously, Shein and Timu do this, but other smaller brands do that too, like Selkie. A lot of Selkie ships directly from China. I will also add, I mean, this segment is really about air shipping, but we have yet another reason in here why clothes are kind of garbage right now. No one has time to get them right. If you're looking at a design today and know it has to arrive in the warehouse in four to six weeks or Maybe you work at Boohoo and it has to be in two weeks. How are you going to get the fit and details just right? Well, the spoiler is you won't, especially 
that fit, which usually takes a few fit sessions and samples, which means time, you'll be lucky if you get one fitting with a fit model in that compressed time frame. And I will tell you more and more over the years in my career, rather than fitting a sample, like legit getting, bringing in the tech designer and fitting it on the fit model and sending notes, we would get the sample and someone on our team would try it on and be like, oh, it fits pretty okay. And then we would be fine with it. We weren't even sure if that person was a small or a medium. It didn't matter. Just, it's cool. That's fine. Okay. It'll fit someone, right? That is why clothes fit so poorly. But also, it's why they're kind of crappy. Because if you get the sample and it's gross or weird, you don't have time to get them to make a better sample. You just have to be like, hey, could you fix these things and go into production? And often, the directions you gave them to fix the garment, maybe... Even if they were followed to the T, uh, maybe the garment needed way more fixing than just that. <laughs> and now it's too late, right? Okay, but back to the air freight. I want to be clear that brands are making up that freight cost, right? They're not just like writing it off. They do that by applying downward pressure on designers, buyers, and production to cut enough of that cost of the garment to cover that airfare. So this is one of the few expenses that I'm talking about in this series where we, in buying design and production, would actually see this expense as a line item on the cost sheet that production would share with us. So we would see that, you know, it's going to cost $2 to ship a dress via air instead of a quarter to ship it via ocean. And so we would have to say, okay, production, we need you to figure out a way to cut $1.75 in cost from that garment. That can mean swapping to a cheaper zipper or getting rid of the zipper altogether or losing the functional buttons. These are all moves that can save a couple of dollars. Maybe it was going to have one pocket, now has zero pockets. We're going to be slicing things off to cover this air freight. And The air freight is basically non-negotiable by the time we have started the design process because we don't have enough time to ship it via ocean already, right? So we can't change it. So to be clear, the majority of clothing made and sold by big brands in 2024 is shipped via airplane. Late last year, Swiss organization Public Eye did a deep investigation into air shipping and the fashion industry. I'm going to share it with you in the show notes because there is a lot of info there. I'm not going to go over all of it, but let's talk about some of the headlines, okay? So first things first, all Shein, Cider, and Timu orders, anything that's factory direct from China, that's all shipping via air anyway. That's how it gets here. If you had to wait six to eight weeks for your order, uh, that would mean it was coming via ocean. And I doubt that's happening because you also can't ship like individual parcels via container. Okay. So this stuff is coming via plane. And Most of those retailers usually offer free shipping, and I want to assure you that you, the customer, are paying for your order's airfare via lower quality clothing, right? They're not covering that for you, really. Just saying again, free shipping is a myth. Okay, now beyond those brands, Inditex, which is the parent company of Zara, seems to use the most air shipping of all retailers. That makes sense because it delivers new product to its 5,815 stores around the world 
twice a week. In fact, Zara and the other Inditex brands like Pool and Bear must rely on air freight so heavily because the company intentionally keeps in-store inventory feeling sort of light so that customers are motivated to shop without hesitation. It creates the feeling that a product might not be there next week if you don't buy it today. And if Zara wasn't shipping new product with stores twice a week, every week, the stores would run out of inventory or at least look very empty very fast. They're buying just enough to sell out week after week after week. Now, Zaragoza, Spain is about 270 kilometers west of Barcelona, and its airport is a major hub for for Zara shipping. In fact, it's such a major hub that it's actually the number two busiest airport in Spain. Zara books about 1,600 flights each year in and out of that airport, not for people, for clothing. According to the person at the airport who handles the Zara shipments, around 32 cargo flights are handled for Inditex every week with about 100 metric tons of clothing on board each one. Around, I had to look at a chart and total this all up with my calculator, but about 49,000 metric tons of product ship in from factories around the world each year at this airport in Zaragoza and 54,000 metric tons of product ship back out to its stores around the world every year. We're talking so much clothing. In fact, most Zara garments see the inside of an airplane at least twice flying into Zaragoza where all product comes in. And there it heads off to the warehouse for sorting and packaging. Then it flies back out of Zaragoza to stores. So to be clear, when you buy something from Zara, especially here in North America, you are paying for two airplane trips for the items you just bought. And yes, That means that the quality of the stuff you are buying is further suppressed by all of that air shipping. Public Eye also did an in-depth examination of customs data for airports around the world. And while Zara and Shein are seemingly using the most amount of air freight in total, customs information also revealed that Uniqlo, Lululemon, and URBN, which is the parent company for Urban Outfitters, Anthropology, Free People, and Newly, are also shipping a lot of clothing via air freight. This air shipping has a major climate impact, obviously, right? I'm going to read you this passage from the public eye investigation that really breaks down the journey that our clothes take. And it it might be, some of it was a little surprising to me even, okay? The Hamburg-based environmental consultancy Sustain has calculated with the auto group the CO2 footprint involved in manufacturing a long sleeve shirt. In terms of the study's results, transport-related greenhouse gas emissions produced by a garment transported by air are around 14 times higher than those of an item which has mostly been transported by sea. The long sleeve shirt has traveled a long way, from the cotton grown in the United States to yarn production, dyeing, and sewing in Bangladesh, and then as a finished product transported by ship to Germany before delivering to the customer's door. This clocks up more than 35,000 kilometers, equivalent to traveling almost once around the world. Okay, but this is not even as extreme as the Zara version, where 
No matter where those clothes were manufactured, they ship into Zaragoza Airport and then go back out. So Zara clothing has an even higher carbon footprint than this long sleeve shirt that Sustain modeled out. And once again, when a garment ships around the world via airplane, as Zara and many other retailers are doing, the carbon footprint increases 14 times over. This is a very big deal. So what we see here is an industry that is not only selling us crappy clothes in the name of speed, but also creating a massive climate footprint in doing so. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, 
crocheted or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. The speed is such a problem, okay? As I mentioned, it means that there's a lot less time to get the details right, especially fit. And the number of times I have bought something with an egregious fit issue that meant I was uncomfortable all day or forced to compensate with belts and layering pieces and safety pins to make something look okay. It only got worse over time. That's been my experience. And then, of course... How many times have you ordered something online, received it, and it was totally disappointing and didn't seem at all like what you ordered, even if it somehow magically fit? What did you do in that situation? You returned it, right? And guess what? Those returns are actually making clothes even more garbagey, leading to more returns. It's a sad, gross, vicious cycle. In 2022, U.S. retail sales were $4.95 trillion. Wow. 
$816 billion worth of merchandise was returned. That was 16.5% of those total sales. That means in simpler terms that for every $100 in stuff bought in 2022, $16.50 worth of product was returned. That might not sound too terrible, but when you start talking about close to $5 trillion in retail sales, you end up with more than $800 billion worth of product being returned. And while we are talking about all categories of products landing at that 16.5% return rate, clothing is closer to 24-25%, meaning one in four garments purchased is returned. I have worked places where our return rate was more like 30-35%. Once again, that would be three out of 10 garments bought being returned. Well, if you're Revolve, their return rate as of late 2023 was 60%, meaning that more than half of the items bought from Revolve were returned. For every 10 items bought, six came back to Revolve. I mean, that that gives me anxiety even thinking about. And interestingly enough, I wandered into a conversation last week on Reddit and everyone was talking about how Revolve quality has gotten so bad over the last couple of years. Hmm. Do you think there's a connection to that and the return rate? Hmm. Well, processing those returns is an arduous and very expensive process called reverse logistics, and it costs so much money. It's actually hard to get a clear number because it turns out that a lot of retailers either aren't tracking it or are trying to keep it a secret because it's not good for stock prices. Just got, just ask Revolve, who has just The stock price just keeps going down. There's a lot of bad reporting about this return rate and how much it's costing the company. Analysts of the industry believe, get ready for a huge range of money here, that the cost of doing all of these returns is anywhere from $50 billion to $200 billion each year. That's quite a range. Others say that the cost of returns is more like 59% of the original selling price of an item. So if the selling price of an item was $50, we're looking at about $30 to process the return, including shipping. In fact, I'm thinking, like, let's just say this is a shirt that cost $50, like as a retail price, that's what the customer paid for it. And we're looking at about $30 to process the return, including shipping. The only, there are only two ways in which this pricing really works out for the company. <laughs> One is that rather than letting the customer get a refund, they get store credit, so they have to buy something else, which is something we are seeing more and more of. I know that, like, I think Dolls Kill does that, and I'm seeing it with other brands as well. It's like at least they still have your money, so it's not a total loss for them. But also to make the company not totally just bleed money processing a return of a $50 shirt, that shirt has to cost, I don't know, at most four to $5 to make, right? And it's selling for $50. So it doesn't sound like a very good deal. And if you're making a shirt for like four or $5 and selling it for $50, it's more likely that the customer is going to be disappointed and return it, right? So it's like this vicious cycle, which I'm going to keep saying over and over again. It makes sense that returns are expensive to handle. I mean, that's if, and this is a big if, 
if that company actually processes all returned items and puts them back in the inventory to sell them to someone else, it takes a lot of time. And we know that time is money. I mean, first there's the return shipping cost. Then there's unpacking the return, inspecting it, steaming, folding, repackaging it, then having someone else put it away in the inventory. There's the process of returning it in the warehouse management system and refunding the money. And then, of course, you need a customer service team that manages all the communication about returns and smooths things over with unhappy customers. It costs a lot of money, and many retailers, more and more of them, have found that this process is actually more expensive than just trashing or donating the returns unprocessed, which speaks to both the cost of this process and the shockingly low costs and high margins of the fast fashion era. So as I discussed in the last episode, buying, design, and production receive margin targets from upper management. The margin target is the markup products should have on average and is non-negotiable. If as a buyer, you don't hit that margin target, you will not have a job much longer. Those margin targets translate into cost targets for everything you buy and you have to stick to them. So those margin targets that upper management hands down to everyone begin in a much larger budget where things like rent, salaries, freight, and even the cost of processing returns are all itemized. Basically, and I'm about to make, I'm just warning you here, creating a profit and loss, a PL, really simple here. It's way more complicated than that. But after finance realizes the expenses to keep the business running each year and profitable, of course, then they use that information to create a sales and margin plan that will cover all of those expenses and make a profit. And that includes the ever increasing cost of all those returns. So the aggressive margin targets, meaning higher markups that fast fashion has right now, mean buying, design, and production have to cut the costs of every product they design and buy even more. As we discussed in part one of this series, they do that by swapping to cheaper fabrics and cutting out details and just generally diluting the original design. They have to do that to cover these other expenses like the cost of all those returns. Now, the irony of this is, of course, that cutting all of those corners like fabric, fit, details, etc., actually leads to more returns. <laughs> I look at a brand like Revolve and I see entire Reddit threads about how crappy their quality is now. And then I read the article about their 60% return rate and I'm like, oh yeah, well, that makes sense. But it's almost like fast fashion brands can't see the big picture or they don't want to see the big picture. It's better for them to sell us lots and lots of shoddy stuff that we will absolutely return, that they will absolutely write off on their books, that will absolutely fill up our landfills, oceans, and every nook and cranny of the earth over time. Because in the short term, it drives profits, it drives up stock prices, and it makes a lot of people at the top very, very rich all while the rest of us cope with the economic and environmental impact of all those shitty clothes. It's no joke when you learn that in 2021, return products turned into 9.6 billion pounds of trash heading to the landfills. That's the equivalent of 10,500 Boeing 747s. It makes sense when you realize 
that at least half of returned clothing is never worn by another person. And the data here is super murky because obviously no one wants to admit to destroying that much stuff, so it may be even more. But ultimately, we are all paying for those returns, the return shipping, the reverse logistics, the disposal, and ultimately the unsold inventory. And how are we paying for that? By getting really crappy clothes that don't fit well, don't last long, and ultimately need to be replaced soon. (sighs) Life in the fast fashion era is so stupid sometimes, right? Like, as I've been working on this and kind of writing it all out and seeing this larger picture, I'm like, wow, like these brands, they could get it together, right? They'd have to, they'd have to take some time and really sit down and say like, okay, we are changing the way we work. We're going to, if we could make better stuff, we might not have to pay for so many returns and we could make better stuff if we didn't spend so much money on air shipping. And so we spent more time planning these products. And if if we gave everyone more time to create these products, we could also ensure that the fit and quality are a lot better too because we have the time to get it right and then there would be even less returns. So basically, if we just slowed things down, we could create better stuff, we wouldn't have to pay for all that air shipping and we wouldn't be dealing with all these returns. It's pretty easy when you break it down like that, huh? You want to get me on the phone with Zara? I'll just talk him through it. (laughs) Anyway, that's all I have for you this week. I'll be back next week to break down even more reasons why new clothes are kind of garbage these days. Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse, written, researched, edited, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe. Um, But most importantly, Just keep listening and sharing what you learn with other people. If you'd like to support my work financially, which I would super appreciate, uh, you can learn more at patreon.com slash clothes horse podcast, or you can buy me a Kofi, which you can find on my website or in my bio on Instagram. Thanks as always to my other half, Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. And I will see you all next week. Bye.